0: Hi there, thanks for joining us for another edition of Adventures in Dowsing I'm Graham Gardner and this is podcast number 58 Megalithic Insights with John Appleton Now this podcast is one that I've been wanting to do for a very long time and indeed it has been some years in the making I've known John for about 20 years now and I regard him as one of my most revered mentors. I've just learned so much from him about ancient astronomy and measurement, sacred geometry, labyrinths and many, many other things. He's a veritable goldmine of knowledge about the natural world and our relationship with it and he's very keen to share it with everybody. There's just so much material with John that I'm going to be uh, splitting this into two or three episodes, uh, much like Peter Jackson did with the Hobbit movies. Uh, so this first episode uh, will be discussing some of John's astronomical ideas, in particular his remarkable discovery of what he's calling the Great Sky Goddess at Avebury. Uh, this was recorded a while back at a meeting of the Geomancy Group as we were sitting around the fire enjoying some fine single malt whiskey, as we do. And it was done in my old recorder, so the quality is not as good as the the later episodes. I hope it doesn't disturb your enjoyment too much. So, pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favourite malt, and join us around the fire as we have a chat with John. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're sat around the fire talking to John Appleton. John, I'd like to... Well, tell us a bit about yourself first, really. I don't actually know what to call you, I mean... I think of you as a kind of uh, <laughs> some sort of mega druid but uh, I don't know if you have an official designation I don't designation. have a myself I must say
1: oh. I was going to say you just call me sir but that's not very appropriate that'll do No, I don't know I've just been around a long time paying attention to things I suppose which are outside the normal framework of society yeah in some people's books esoteric or controversial counterculture all that stuff and it's just been part of the way I've Look to things and i 've been particularly interested in in uh, ancient man, I think the connection between us and our ancestors and their works is very really, really important, and you can 't just sort of as it were drive past anyway i haven 't driven past i 've cycled slowly from sight to sight at the age of seventeen, and now I carry people about in strange parts of the world from hinge to circle
0: and enjoy the trip myself. I'm rambling. Carry on. Well, one of the first things, uh, one of the first lessons I learned from you was how to approach a stone circle looking for astronomical alignments, which I think is a quite individual uh, approach, but has a great deal of truth to it. You're talking about the idea of sighting between stones rather than over... Sighting across across the circle, as opposed to... Um,
1: and, you know, frankly, it's very difficult to stand in the middle of a circle and look at stones of a number of different shapes and, and heights and say the event we're looking at is, what, over the top of it or just down the side of it? You know, it's a single stone sighting leaves a lot to be desired. You can't be very accurate. And they worked hard at making it accurate. They would m- make the tip of the stone meet the horizon and stuff like that. But it, it isn't reliable. But there's another method altogether, which is to look right across the circle, seeing stones on the near side and the far side, which are pointing arranged so that when you've got your left eye behind the near stone, your right eye is just clear of the edge of the stone, and you're looking through a narrow gap on the far side between the opposing stone and its left side, you get a very, very sharp point, marker, and it's really down to fractions of a degree, which is very different from the idea of just, just looking over a stone. But the only way to do it is to, is to actually put up a couple of poles, convenient stones, whatever, and just look at it. And as soon as you move your eye and see how tightly that gap between the stones fixes your eye, it's better. That's better to see it. Two stones on their own will do this job. I mean, in Brittany, where I've been recently, I've been looking at a number of sites with a pair of many, in the same standing stones obviously related to each other in the same field and of course they give you just that, just these two posts mean that you can find the point of sighting between them That gives you a very accurate line and in this case the two I looked at most recently both had points or an alignment between them which showed the most northerly rising point. The moon at its, at its maximum swing and I thought these two things within 50-60 miles of each other in Brittany pointing to the same thing was a bit of a coincidence if it wasn't intentional but, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's an accurate pointer it works in circles and works in, in pairs of stones and you can get more complicated and go to ways of showing several alignments with uh, only four stones but that's another whole story
0: can you think of any uh, specific examples? That
1: well, I mean, the, the thing that one immediately looks at is Stonehenge. Everybody starts saying, "Oh, Stonehenge is the place," and it's always been accepted for a long time that the <coughs> sighting towards the midsummer sunrise, which is much touted as coming up over the heel stone, isn't actually very accurate and was less accurate when the, the Stonehenge was built. It's not the alignment that the hinge was built for, if you turn around and look the other way, between the stones of the, of the major trilithal at the back, you get a very neatly defined and accurate line to the midwinter setting sun. So maybe we should reconsider Stonehenge altogether, but um, it certainly isn't true to say that there's an accurate alignment to the mid-summer rising sun down out of the centre of Stonehenge. On the other hand, I, have to say I don't know an alignment through the hen, which well, you'd expect me to say I'd found that does that particular thing either. So may- maybe the uh, summer sunrise, midsummer sunrise, wasn't so important as we would like to think.
0: Uh, I know you spent a lot of time walking
1: in Avebury. Well, yeah, you know, but I go back a long way. But I think the most interesting one for me recently, the last several years have been very important, is the fact that the setup of Oprah suggests that the night sky was an important part of the use of the site, and that looking south was a very important direction. If you imagine, if you're standing anywhere looking south, the stars will be rising in the east and rising into a, an arch across the top of the sky and going down again in the west. Just the same path that the sun takes for the same reason. But because it's an arch and the stars which are further south appear closer to the ground, then there's, for those stars, a sort of interaction with, with the earth. Looking out of the centre of, of Avery, over Waden Hill, to the south, you're seeing an elevated horizon and just visible over the, off to the south-east, you'll just see the top of Silbury Hill. So you've got this swell of hill which is Wayden Hill, then Silbury Hill beside it. If you could see my fingers in the air you'd understand. (laughs) But anyway, what happens at April, and there's a bit of a long story about how we got to that, is that looking south there's this arch of stars moving over Waden Hill, and a very significant one of those is the constellation of Orion, which comes up in the east, rises until Orion is vertical in the sky. Sirius, the dog, well, follows on behind, and they both, as it were, walk over Waden Hill. and They seem to make a passage over two or three hours from one side to the other, following the up- curve of the hill. And at just about 1 in the morning, Orion comes and stands on Silbury Hill. Uh, And he's actually facing the constellation of Taurus. It's as if there was a a hunter chasing a bull. But that only started a, a trail going back through the meanings of these stars, particularly in that part of the sky. And one of the things that came up was that the two stars high in the sky, directly in the south at that time, which we call Gemini, the twins, were called by the Indians uh, the eyes of Aditi uh, the two stars being horizontal would seem like a couple of eyes and curiously by the, by the Norse mythology is the eyes of Teazi is another important part of Norse mythology so in two cases cultures separated a long way apart we're using these two stars as eye images and of course You think, eyes? Well, there must be a head that goes with that, and a body, too. And at that point, looking up to the, above the Milky Way, which arches over the top of our eye, looking up to the two stars, you can see a face. Two eyes looking at you. And I saw, and other people I've shown this to have seen, the shape of a woman. A great woman standing over at Midnight, Midwinter. With her arms spread wide, her left hand is on the star Capella, and her right hand is on the star Procyon. Now, this, this, this figure seen in the sky, which is quite easy to see, is in a very significant part of the sky because the plane of the ecliptic comes right through the body. So all the planets all well, those, certain the exterior planets and the sun and moon pass across this figure which is only seen in the winter um, so she is standing at a sort of crossroads and, and the crossroads idea is where the plane of the cryptic crosses the Milky Way and also the, the north-south line and of course a woman holding two lights standing at the crossroads could be a goddess equity he- would come to mind but she's also Aphrodite, rising out of the foam of the Milky Way. Um, she's, of course, the Great Mother. She's the, the, and it's, when you're looking up at the stars, it's, she's high above you, uh, looking down, much as a mother would look down into a cradle. You have to lean way back to get the full effect of this very large figure from, no um, oh, about angle of 70 degrees right down to the horizon. There she stands. There are confirming parts of this and you're getting a shortened version. Um, If you look at the myth of Aditi in, in Indian mythology, she was the boundless one, one of her names, but she came into existence at the time when the demons and the gods were fighting for control of the universe and it was a pretty close thing and the gods started getting worried and decided what they ought to do is to get together to produce a warrior figure, a hero that would win the battle for them. And so they all concentrated on this this being. And what appeared was a great woman, um, Aditi, riding on the back of a tiger and uh, holding, well she grasped the the... Horn of the chief demon, and forced him into the ground, thereby saving the world. And I could immediately see, looking at the figure up high above my head, arms outstretched, but the the hand, her left, which is Capella, is immediately over the horns of Taurus, the constellation. So she's as it were holding, because the whole. Sky is moving right across. She's holding the head of the bull, but she falls into the ground, and herself goes into the ground afterwards. So we've got this uh, a combination in stars of quite a lot of mythological content, which confirm the what, in my view, is the certainty that ancient people recognised this figure, and so some some of the old female gods, and probably some of the new ones, can be identified as the same figure. I mean, for instance, the sign in Phoenicia for their goddess was Tanit, with a little circle, with a crossbar, and a triangle underneath, which when you look at the sky figure is pretty well the same. It's it, The image is of this woman with a great skirt, as it happens, and Orion is as it were, within the area of that skirt, underneath the Milky Way, he's almost having been a warrior, seen as a warrior, a child for this great mother. But I'll stop at that point. There's a whole lot more work and information that's available about it. Well, so it? You
0: have the whole Isis-Horus mother-child.
1: Oh, absolutely, in every direction when you look in different um, myths, you think, yeah, it could have been that one. And that's how see how it works. It may be one of the most universal first causes.
0: Hi, I'm uh, Bill Holding for Chairman of Ridings Dowsers. I've been dowsing for probably 30-odd years now plus. And you are listening to Adventures in Dowsing, the internet's original dowsing podcast. Not much news in this episode, but I just wondered if you've checked out the dowsing forum on BritishDowsing.net formerly the British Society of Dowsers Forum, but it's now, like this podcast, independently hosted by my good self. It has a dedicated section about the podcast where you can post your comments, and it's a great place to ask your questions about any dowsing issues. It's free and open to everyone to join. I'd just like to give a quick shout-out to all our newest members, in particular the very experienced dowsers Maggie and Nigel Percy, Um, Maggie in particular has been doing a great job in revitalising many old topics of discussion and is a very interesting thread on the nature of dowsing, what it is and what it isn't. So do check it out at BritishDowsing.net forward slash forum. Hope to see you there. But now, let's get back to John. Okay, we have a question from the floor. Patrick.
1: Yes. Uh, John, could you tell us again... Exactly, which stars and in which part of the sky, at which time of year, uh, we can clearly and easily identify the constellation you're the, describing. The, yeah, Orion starts to appear in the evening sky in the autumn, around now, in October we're talking, and uh, night after night, that group of stars appear earlier and earlier, and are therefore higher in the sky. Um, the event which I'm talking about, where Orion and the goddess stand vertical with their foot, which is the star Rigel, on top of Silbury Hill. It's not just any old bit of the horizon, it's Silbury Hill, for God's sake, with a great mother connection. Um, And that is actually at about one o'clock in the morning on winter solstice night, so take it the 21st, 23rd, doesn't matter, it's about that time. But of course the whole procession, you, you see these figures arising in the sky and they reach, as it were, a culmination point, but they've also got a bit more. So in my view, if, if people gathered at Avery at doing ceremony relating to what was going on in the sky, it would be a long process, so they must have gone here and sung songs and moved there and observed something, because it, there needed to be a story with it. Yeah, but the, but the group of stars for you to consider are Castor and Pollux themselves, Gemini. Then the um, uh, the, eye. the, the eyes of, of the figure. Then the Milky Way comes across. Then the two arms are outstretched, Capella and Procyon. Those are those. And then you come down to the stars within the constellation of, of Orion, and everybody knows the three stars that go across the belt. The star which points at Sirius, which is over there. Beetlejuice and Rigel are the top and bottom of what looks like a sort of diamond shape, which is the most basic way in which you can see Orion. There are other stars where his, where his arm comes out. Um, I've taught this bit of astrology to kids, and uh, juice they like, is an idea, and I said, well, you get juice by standing on a beetle, which will wriggle, Rigel, so... Yeah, are, Beetlejuice and Rigel. <laughs> <laughs> it's an important part of the sky, and midwinter, mid- any time, up 10 o'clock, the stuff's visible. It's just going to move around until it's standing vertical. And as the year goes further on, beyond the midwinter, then you'll see the figures further over every time you look up, you know, if you're using a standard time. Because you know about the idea of the stars moving steadily around through the year. Different mm. stars rise at different times all through the year.
0: Didn't you say, um, the first time you told us this story, there was something about uh, the Milky Way flows across her breasts, mm. and there were two stars representing her nipples? And there was oh, yeah, there are two smaller
1: names? stars that are on the Milky Way, which actually are her breasts. We saw on her left nipple, so to speak, just, uh, is Called by the Arabs Wazat, and Wazat actually means, translated, in the middle or the centre. And of course, in terms in astronomical terms, there it is, right on the plane of the ecliptic on the on the north south axis. So uh, there is a quite clear crossing point, and it's at the middle.
0: So it was on the meridian. Yeah, on the sun. So the the yes. yes. Can you explain how the movement of the moon during a month mirrors the path of the sun throughout the year? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is a difficult one for
1: people to to take on board because the moon is dodging about on the horizon when it rises, for instance, either further north or further south, on a fairly rapid basis. So you might look up on the 10th and and see it rising exactly east. By the 18th or 19th, it's much, much further south. And then it's coming back again, and we'll be seen another fortnight later right up in the north. So that's caused by the fact that the way the moon circulates around the Earth, and the Earth's axis is tilted, means that the position of the moon at any one time is not going to be the same. I'm not explaining that very well. But it, it moves, apparently it moves up and down. This band of the moon's movement means that we see it at a different angle. Anyway, the really important thing to notice is that the height of the passage of the moon changes the place it, it rises right on the horizon. So when it's furthest north, it'll be passing across the sky at a high position, and when it's at its most southerly rising point, it'll be passing across the sky in a low position. And that will vary, a complete circuit, in a month. And of course, that's exactly what the sun does. It rises further and further north in the summer, and then moves south in the winter. And it does the same circuit. And in, in many ways, the moon and the sun's movement on the horizon mirrors each other, but on a different time scale.
0: Hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, I know you've done some research looking into the purpose of long barrows as astronomical observatory things
1: well um, I can talk specifically about the West Kennet Long Barrow which everyone knows not as big and accessible Yeah. Um, at the end they walled it up and put a great big stone up in front it's not at all clear whether it went on being used after the stone was put up or not But the important thing is that inside the passageway down the main entrance there are two side chambers either side. So you've got these four all clustered together at the mouth and you go down a bit further into the main centre of the east end of the Long Barrow. Now the direction of the whole Long Barrow is east so that the opening is in the east and what would quite naturally happen was the sun would rise at the equinox down the passageway and shine straight down it. And that would be an event that would only last for a few days at the equinox, both spring and autumn. But if you move into the side chamber, other side of this entrance, something else happens. You see out through a gap, the first chamber moving down the passageway on the left, if we go into there, that makes it easy to be specific about what you're looking at. You're looking out at the stone on the right-hand side of the entrance, the big stone, and the gap between it and the central blocking stone. And that line from that small chamber across there is towards the sun rising in its most southerly position, which is the mid-winter solstice. So there's A-line. So if you think, oh, what happens if I move across to the other side of the corridor? Little chamber, first one down the way, that looks out. And you see there's another similar gap between two suns pointing up to the sun's midsummer rising position so it's sort of interesting now we've got midsummer midwinter, and the equinox popping out. let's see what happens if we go to the two chambers further back in so you look out and you find convenient you can still see through the sa- actually the same gap, but it's a point further south on the horizon. What's the date on which the sun rises down that line? Well it's two dates during the year, it's Imwok and Sowain. It's you know, February the second and October the thirty first or second, depending on how you look at it. And then as you might expect, you walk across to the other chamber, look out through the same gap, and you get the same effect for the two other cross-quarter days, uh, Beltane and Lammas. So there you are. One simple little thing gives you Midsummer summer rise, mid-winter rise, equinox rise, and the four cross-quarter days, all because the light is shining into the chamber in this passageway.
0: Now does this only work now with the blocking stone being there? Well it it works
1: sharply now but if the blocking stone was taken out what you would actually be looking at is the left or right hand edge of the the stone that was part of the original facade Um, so it worked pretty well as, as well without the blocking stone there. But I even think that the gaps at the side of the blocking stone are big enough to work rather well. Maybe they were intending to keep some function for this space. They weren't actually Mm -hmm. just filling it in and forgetting about it.
0: Does this occur in uh, other parables that you've you've
1: been to? Uh, um, Well, not many of them. have got these multiple inner chambers. I'm just just rapidly scanning. I can't, can't bring to mind any that I can point that. I was so excited about finding West Kennet and knowing it was a rather special case. Mostly, of course, barrows are oriented to the east, but not not always to the equinox. They, they range somewhere between belden and and uh, Selwyn, rising and setting points.
0: Okay, I think it's best if we leave it there for now, but rest assured there's plenty more to come. So I hope you managed to keep up with that discussion. Uh, I appreciate that it's kind of hard to grasp a lot of what's uh, going on here without having visual aids, but luckily you can find lots more details and plenty of pictures on John's website at johnappleton.org. That's jonappleto dot org. And I'll put a link up on the main website at adventuresanddowsing.com as usual. Uh, so that's it for this episode. If you have any comments about the show that you would like to share, you can send us an email at podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or you can leave a comment on the main website or post in the uh, British Dowsing Forum. So thanks for listening and many thanks to Winter Gatton, Not For Pussies and Ian Pegler for all the music and I hope you can join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.
1: I've run out of space on this one.
0: Okay. Hmm. Hmm.